Yeah, can be seated. Good morning. It is great to see everybody today, and as everybody I think knows uh, right now, today is my 15th anniversary as your pastor here at Southlands. And um, I say that because my very first sermon series here 15 years ago, which uh, no one will remember probably, uh, was actually called First Things First, and it was a three-week series uh, where we talked about the th- three central priorities of a faithful and effective church. Uh, those were worship and evangelism and discipleship. And I thought about that this week because I, I think it's really providential. We find ourselves in our study in Acts in a passage which is really about the fundamentals of what it means uh, to be a faithful and effective church. Uh, Acts eleven nineteen through 30 is a passage that introduces us to one of the most important churches in the 2,000-year history of the Christian church. It is the church at Antioch. And as we're going to see, the Antioch church was a gospel-centered church. And we're going to see this very fascinating group of Christ followers a number of times as we work our way through Acts, but I want to introduce them to you today, and I want to show you why they were so important, and I want to show you why that still matters today. And I have to say, this is my favorite New Testament church. It's, there's a lot of good churches, you know, in the New Testament that you can learn from and, and you can look at. Uh, it's kind of like the 930 service is my favorite service. Now, don't tell the other services that I said that. But, you know, the Antioch church is just my favorite church. And I, I, I think it's just because of all the amazing ways that they lived out the gospel and the ways that God used them. And because of that, it really isn't an exaggeration to say that the Antioch Church is the most influential church in all of church history when you consider long-term impact. And we're going to see uh, why. It wasn't a perfect church, but they did so many things right. This was a church really that knew what it was to be a sent people to live out the gospel. It was such an incredible place. And just to help you kind of get into this and begin to understand the picture, I want to tell you some things about where this church lived, the city of Antioch. Now, geographically, Antioch was located 300 miles north of Jerusalem, about 15 miles east of the Mediterranean Sea. We got a map up here uh, for you to look at and get a picture of. It was on the Orontes River. It, it, it was located in what is now south-central Turkey, real close to uh, today's border of Syria. Antioch was the third largest city in the Greco-Roman world, behind only Rome and Alexandria. Between a half a million and 800,000 people lived there. It was known as the Queen of the East. Incredible place. It, it was the capital city of that region of Syria, Because of that, it was the base for the Roman military in that region. And because of that, it really was a commercial hub. There were crossroads of major highways going through it, north and south and east. And all that commerce and all those politics just made it an incredible place of multicultural diversity. All kinds of people lived there. Greeks and Romans and Syrians and Phoenicians and Jews and Arabs and Egyptians, and Africans, and Indians, and Asians, all had congregated, gathered in this one city. All kinds of people. And they had all kinds of gods. Antioch was a very pluralistic and very idolatrous city. 
Uh, Some people called Antioch the abode of the gods since several Greek deities were worshipped there. And, And five miles from Antioch was a place called the Park of Daphne, and it was known for its worship of Daphne and Apollo. It was kind of like what we might consider today a temple compound of some kind. And uh, this religion had a very prominent aspect of it, and that was what we would call uh, today in the studies of religion, cult prostitution. And what that meant was there was a lot of prostitutes who were there as consorts, part of the religious retinue that was part of the worship there, and people would come, worshipers would come, and part of their worship... And if you're just listening to this, I'm putting quotation marks around the worship. <laughs> a part of their worship was uh, prostitution. That was part of how they did worship. As a consequence of this, the phrase, the morals of Daphne, was really known all over the, the, the Roman Empire as a phrase to describe immorality. Antioch was so bad that even Rome thought Antioch was a scandalous place. And there was a a famous writer uh, in Rome who said, the filth of the Orontes has flowed into the Tiber. So the Orontes River, the Tiber River. Now, having described all that, here's what I want to say. That was a great place for a church, right? Is that what you thought? You may not have thought that first, but it really is true. That was a great place for a church because the light of Christ shines brightest in the darkness. And it is in this city that I have just described that believers are first called Christians. It is in this city that God establishes the very first launching pad for worldwide missions. The spread of the gospel happens from this place primarily, as we're going to see in the rest of the book of Acts. It was the Antioch church, not the mother church in Jerusalem that changed the world. Now, the Jerusalem church was a wonderful place. We should respect it for its uniqueness and what God did there. But it seems pretty clear the Jerusalem church had issues of reaching Gentiles that they never fully got past. But Antioch was different. What made Antioch different? What made this church such a powerful place? And I want to just point out today three marks of a gospel-centered church that Luke writes about. Three things I want you to see, and they are... Very basic, very simple to understand, but they are very difficult to apply in our lives. And I want to frame them in the following way. Some of you will remember that a few years ago, we developed a simple strategy that uh, explained what we are trying to do here at Southwinds in three words, and those words are connect, grow, and serve. And I want to use these words to help describe the gospel-centered church that we see in Antioch because we see these priorities highlighted by what they were doing. Here's the first thing. You can write this down in your notes uh, where it says connect. We must reach out to our community with faithful, effective evangelism. The first thing we see about this church at Antioch was they were a church of faithful, effective evangelism. Look at verses 19 through 21. Luke writes, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however... Men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now, the most prominent thing we see about this church is that they just had this incredible outreach to people who didn't know Jesus. You don't want to miss this. 
This church was birthed by evangelism. The, the gospel gets planted in Antioch, and out of that planting of the gospel, then a church is established. Now, here's what's going on. We, we saw before, uh, back in Acts 8, how persecution had scattered believers from Jerusalem. Well, Luke connects back into this in verse 19 and tells us that some of those people who scattered from the persecution of, uh, of Stephen, the martyrdom of Stephen, they traveled farther north, past Samaria. They went to Phoenicia, which is in present-day Lebanon. Some of them got on boats and crossed the Mediterranean Sea about 100 miles to the island nation of Cyprus. And some of them settled in Antioch. And as they were scattered, Luke says, they were telling the message, verse 19. And most of the people who spoke the gospel, they, they were only speaking to Jewish people. They were like a lot of us. And this is not a bad thing. It's not a bad place to begin. You start with people that you have some natural points of connection with, whether they're your family or whether it's business or where, whether you share some common religious heritage. But verse 20 shows us something new. Luke says, some men from Cyprus and Cyrene. So Cyprus is the island nation. Cyrene is northern Africa in present-day Tunisia. These men arrive in Antioch, and they courageously share the good news also with Greek-speaking Gentiles. Something new is happening. These disciples in this diverse city filled with people from all the nations are now reaching out with the gospel to the Gentiles. We saw last week, uh, Peter has preached to Cornelius, and the Gentile mission has begun, but it hasn't begun in a way like we're seeing now. It is now an intentional outreach to the Gentile people groups. And this is a radically new thing. They are breaking through a major cultural barrier. Now, I want to see three or several lessons, actually, from the way the Antioch church practiced evangelism. There's going to be four. First of all, uh, you can write this down. We engage the culture where we live. This was the first reason that these people made such an impact. We look at what we see here, and we see these men from Cyprus and Cyrene, they were men of the world. They were men who interacted with Gentiles, with the Greeks, different peoples all the time. And it meant things like this. It meant that they were not the kind of people who would be offended by the offhanded, irreligious comments that some of their friends made. If someone uttered a profanity they weren't going to end the relationship and they weren't going to cast judgment down on these people. They didn't look down in disdain on people who were living immoral, unrighteous lives. These men from Cyprus and Cyrene weren't all bound up with the anti-Gentile prejudice that was so common in traditional Judaism. What they were doing is just starting with these people where they were living. They were a lot like Paul, who they're going to meet not too distant future from here, who, who would one day soon write, I became all things to all people so that by every possible means I might win some. This just reminds us that to do effective evangelism, we have to engage with people where they are without getting tangled up in sin. And let's just be honest, there are some of us, we've been Christians maybe for a long time, we've been inside the church for such a long time that we're kind of handicapped in this area because we don't know how to do this. We don't know how to talk to people who aren't like us. But these people did. They weren't just going into the synagogues. 
where they had common ground. They were going out into the city. They were going out into all the diversity, into the religious pluralism. They were mixing it up with the pagans, and they were preaching the Lord Jesus. Sometimes Christians get kind of an escapist mentality. Maybe you could call it a bomb shelter mentality. You know, we we look at this world, and it's bad, right? It's dark, and there's wickedness all around us. I mean, don't don't you feel like that sometimes? I mean, it is bad. Our world is dark. Our world is filled with sin and evil and violence, uh, wickedness. But that doesn't mean we're supposed to retreat. We're not supposed to retreat behind our our church walls and kind of lob gospel bombs over the wall and hope they explode on somebody. That doesn't work real well, if you haven't noticed already. We have to go out to where people are. We have to engage them as they are where they live. And let's just be real honest. Uh, Too many times uh, there are some Christians who are more concerned about protecting their own way of life than they are about sharing the gospel with pagans who may change the way things are in their churches. Have you ever noticed that when people come to church who've never been in church, they're just different? They do different kinds of things. They think in different sorts of ways. And sometimes that bugs the people who are already there, right? You can be honest and just say amen whether you want to or not. You know what I was thinking this week, and I'm thinking it right now as I'm looking at this crowd? Some of you just a few years ago, were those people. Amen? You were the outsider. You were the one who didn't know what was going on inside this odd, strange thing called the church. But you came, and you were received and accepted, and God has been working in your life. We've all been outsiders at some point, right? You see, If we're going to be effective in reaching the people around us, we have to get out where they are, where they live. We have to engage them as they are. You know, we can't be salt and we can't be light if we never get out where the rot and where the darkness actually is. If we don't get involved and mix it up with people who actually live in this corrupt and dark world, we have to be involved with people. And we have to learn how to live faithfully and sensibly and wisely and Uh, seriously, soberly, graciously, winsomely among those who are far from God. See, we are in a spiritual war, but you can't fight the war hiding behind walls. You have to engage people, and we have to do that for the sake of the gospel. Second thing we see is that we must share the gospel with clarity. Uh, These are people who knew how to speak in a way that those people in Antioch actually understood. And we see this insight in a phrase in verse 20 that you may have just kind of read past. You may not have really understood at first glance what it was saying. The phrase is, they were telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Now, you, you might think that sounds kind of usual and normal, but here's what every commentator points out. They were not starting, these men from Cyprus and Cyrene, by preaching Jesus as the Christ or as the Messiah. They weren't starting with the hope of Israel or or with the Jewishness of Jesus because they understood that the people in Antioch didn't know what that meant. They were talking to Gentiles. Where they did start was with preaching Jesus as Lord, as Kyrios. That's a Greek word. It's transliterated K-Y-R-I-O-S or K-U-R-I-O-S. And The Gentiles had a category for that, and it came in their mystery religions that were very common in the city. 
in that region. The mystery religions commonly use this term kyrios or Lord to refer to a divine God who gave salvation to people. And so these evangelists came and they told everyone in Antioch about the kyrios who is the only savior. These men from Cyprus and Cyrene came to people who believed in these mystery religions and they filled their mystery with meaning. See, they knew who they were talking to. And so they were able to apply the gospel to the people in Antioch in a way that they understood. Now, over time, of course, they discipled them and they told them about the hope of Israel. They told them about the Jewish scriptures. But you don't get the sense that they started there. You get the sense they started with something that the people could understand. And we need to do the same thing today. If you haven't figured it out yet, let me inform you today, okay? We live in a post-Christian culture. There was a day a few generations ago when people who never went to church, people who didn't name the name of Christ, they kind of understood the basic framework of the Bible. They knew some of the Bible stories. They they kind of knew the big picture. That is not true today. Most of the people that you interact with who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ have no clue about anything that's in the Bible. And that means we need to start where they are. That means we can't use the same sort of language that we might use here where we all kind of are on the same page. We need to begin where they are, meet them where they are so they can hear the gospel, so they can respond to the gospel. We need to apply the gospel to their situation. There's a third thing I want you to notice. And we should live with humility as we see this church. And I get this from something very remarkable about these men. It's their anonymity. We don't even know their names. These guys started the most prominent, most impactful church in all of church history for 2,000 years, and nobody knows who they are. They're just men from Cyprus and Cyrene. They're just like dudes or something. We don't know. And I think this is a very important thing to realize because we live today, and all of us are sucked into it in different ways. We live in a celebrity-soaked celebrity conscious culture and it's so easy to get drawn into that i don't know if you saw this but on wednesday kylie jenner said she was bored with snapchat and on thursday snapchat lost over 1.3 billion dollars in valuation now here's the thing okay i'm a pastor of a church i don't care about snapchat one bit i do care about a culture and maybe some of us in this room that care way too much about what Kylie Jenner says or thinks. I mean, we live in a culture where someone like that can make a statement like that, and it actually has impact in the real world. It says something about where we live. And it's just, it's just part of this larger reality that so many of us are part of where we, think to, we, we tend to think that nothing really matters unless someone famous does it, or nothing really matters unless what you do makes you famous. I mean, do you, do you think like that? Billy Graham died this week. Everybody knows that. And Billy Graham was in a true sense in what we might call a celebrity. More importantly than that, he was the most important American Christian leader of the 20th century. I don't think there's any question about that. Uh, There are a number of scholars who would say that he is the most significant evangelist in Christianity since the Apostle Paul. I agree with that. I thank God for Billy Graham. I, I thank God for how God used him to make a worldwide impact. 
And I think we should honor his life. But I want to tell you something. The truth is this. Anonymous people who no one but God will ever know in the last 100 years have brought countless more people to Jesus Christ than Billy Graham. And Billy Graham would rejoice in that. That's just how God works. And if you've ever wondered whether an anonymous person like you or like me could really make a difference for the kingdom, this tells us the answer is what? Yes. Yes. See, these men were just being faithful to Jesus. They didn't have a plan. They didn't have a program. They didn't have a budget. They just had zeal for the Lord. And God worked through them in a mighty way. You see, what makes a church powerful is when every believer is on mission together. Every believer. Say, that's me. Every believer. When all of us together. When you're serving God, you're on mission in the day-to-day rhythm of life, uh, within your networks of your relationships. This is the people you interact with every day. This reminds us that the most important people in the church are not always the most well-known. You see, we have a tendency to confuse popularity with significance. And I just want to say, you're not necessarily significant if you're popular, and you're not necessarily popular just because you're significant. The most significant church in 2,000 years got started because so-called nobodies were telling everybody about somebody who had changed their lives. And if only all the Christians that are here today could realize how much God could use them if they were just men from Cyprus and Cyrene. I also read this week um, that in Steve Jobs' biography, his biographer said that Steve Jobs' overarching goal was the creation of a truly personal computer for ordinary people. You know, that's really the aim of the Bible, that every ordinary disciple have a personal mission. And that's something we should be praying for as a people. What would God do if every single one of us just started engaging the people around us, just started sharing the good news with clarity, just started living humble life out in the community, out in our neighborhoods, out among our networks, wherever God has put us. Can you imagine, you know, we, we are hoping and trusting in God that, that this fall we're going to be moving into that new auditorium and we're going to have more capacity to reach more people. What would it be like if every one of you here, by this time next year, we've been in that building for a few months, this time next year you have somebody with you and you shared the gospel with them and they trusted Jesus Christ and they've come to know him and you're helping them walk the path to getting to know him better. You're including them in your life. What would that be like? Is anybody dreaming about anything like that? Sounds great, right? Well, here's the deal. Do you have anyone in your life, have a name on your heart that you're praying for and you're looking for opportunities to share? You're doing those things that will lead up to that time when you can't actually tell them the gospel. That's what we see happening here. And it's an amazing thing when God's people are all on mission together. There's one more thing that made their evangelism effective, and that is God's power. Look again at verse 21. Uh, This reminds us we should rely on God's power. 
you know, how did they have such extraordinary impact, these ordinary people? Well, the answer is right here. The Lord's hand was with them. This is what made all the difference. God blessed their witness. And what this means is that God's hand of favor was on them. Uh, this phrase is used in Scripture to talk about God's favor. Like Psalm 90, 17, it says, May the favor of the Lord be upon us. I mean, that is what we need, right? We need God's hand. We need God's blessing. We need God's power. We need this individually, and we need it corporately. We should be asking for that, praying that God's favor would be on us individually and on our church corporately. See, the church in Antioch was birthed by effective evangelism. They just practiced that. They were faithful in sharing the gospel. And as a result, we find that for the very first time in history, a church made up of Jews and Gentiles together worshiping God. Here's a second truth that I want you to see. This is about growing. And uh, you can write this down in your, your message notes. We deepen our fellowship with authentic discipleship. Antioch was a church where people were truly, authentically being discipled. Uh, look at verses 20 through to 26. Luke writes, News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So what do you do when you have all these new believers freshly saved, just freshly converted out of paganism? They don't know the Bible. They're not really sure how they're supposed to live. Well, obviously, they need to be discipled. And God brings on the scene two dynamic leaders, Barnabas and Saul, to strengthen these people. I want to point out three ways that they do discipleship that, that we should be practicing as well. The first way is loving accountability. In verse 22, we read that the news about what God was doing, just saving all these Gentiles, that news gets down south to Jerusalem and and the church there hears about it, and they send Barnabas as their emissary to kind of check things out, probably, uh, in their minds, do some quality control. And we kind of get the sense that there may have been some in that church who were a little critical, maybe a little suspicious about the great things being reported that God was doing in Antioch. But I think there were some others who were hopeful and just wanted to help, and I think Barnabas was in that group. It turns out they couldn't have sent a better person Barnabas was a Hellenist from Cyprus. He was a person who spoke Greek. It was his native language. And he was a, a person who could relate to the Gentiles better uh, probably than a Jewish Palestinian person could. And then on top of that, what we see about Barnabas, he just loved people. He was the right man for the job there at Antioch. Now, this reminds us that accountability is very important. It is critical that that doctrine be biblically accurate. It is critical that people are living according to truth. And they didn't have any apostolic leadership there at Antioch. They just had a lot of new believers coming in from all kinds of cultures, all kinds of religion from all over the world. And so they needed some accountability, but they also needed love. And maybe you've encountered this before in your life. Sometimes accountability can turn into the cold water committee. Have you ever known someone like that? They love doing accountability. 
but they don't love people. And where, what we need with accountability is that life-giving love come with it. That leads to the second thing involved in authentic discipleship, and I'm going to call this faithful encouragement. I think every new believer needs a Barnabas. Uh, Barnabas' name, as you probably know, means son of encouragement, but that wasn't his real name. That's not what his mama named him. You know what his mama named him? She was probably a little irritated people didn't use her name. She named him what? Joseph. But Joseph was this guy who was always encouraging everybody. He encouraged people so very much that people just started calling him son of encouragement, Barnabas. His, 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 somebody said his ministry became his moniker. <laughs> you know, it just turned into his nickname, and pretty soon people forgot about Joseph. They just called him Barnabas because that's who he was. That's what he did. And he was the perfect guy for all these new believers. I mean, you can just imagine what might have happened if the Jerusalem church had picked some narrow-minded fundamentalist to send to Antioch. I mean, they would have suffocated the fire. Instead, Barnabas comes and Barnabas blows on the fire. Verse 23 says, he saw the grace of God and he was glad. Not mad, like some people. He was glad. And it probably took some doing because... We can be pretty confident that the Antioch church was very different from Jerusalem. We don't know how, but it just would have been different because these were different people. You know, the, the worship would have been done in a different way. You know, you think about it, probably like the music was different. I don't know how it was different, but they probably used guitars and drums. They probably did it really loudly. Maybe they had some spoken word hip hop, you know, and maybe... <laughs> Maybe they even danced in Antioch. Who knows? You know, they did the nene or something like that. And, and the sad thing is that's all some of you are going to remember from this sermon. I don't, you know. <laughs> Pastor Mike kind of did the nene. It was, it was weird. Uh, the point is, this is not Jerusalem. This is Antioch. People are different. Culture's different. Dress would have been different. But Barnabas comes from where he lived, and he could see the big picture. And Barnabas understood that cultural styles, preferences don't ultimately matter. What matters is if God is at work. And so he says, I'm going to blow on the fire. I'm not going to suffocate it. I'm not going to try to make everybody like me, conform everyone to my pattern. He just let Antioch be Antioch. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but in the history of missions... Uh, it has happened from time to time that missionaries go to different cultures and they try to conform them to the culture that they're coming from. Uh, this happened in the 19th and early 20th centuries quite often with American missionaries who, who went to places like Africa and Asia and tried to make those people who came to Christ there into Americans culturally. Uh, we know about many missionaries who went to Africa and they made African converts and then they tried to make these African converts dress like Americans. You know, living at the equator, they're dressing like someone who lives in New England. Does that sound like a good idea to anybody? Uh, they tried to make these African believers sing songs with the same tonalities that were, were common and familiar in, in America. They didn't let them be Africans who are Christians. They didn't just let them flourish in their culture as long as that culture wasn't in violation of what God says in his word. And sometimes I think we need to be reminded of that. When we reach people of different cultures, our goal 
is the gospel. Our goal is not to put our culture on them. We are to teach the word and we are to help them apply the gospel in their culture. And encouragement is a vital part of that. I want you to notice how important encouragement is for those Christians. Verse 23 says, Barnabas encouraged them to remain true to the Lord. Now, notice this. That word remain implies that they were already being true. They were already being faithful. And it just shows us if you want to be a disciple maker, you need to do more than instruct people. You need to also encourage people. And there's a lot of us, maybe someone here, you're really good with Bible, but you are terrible with encouragement. See, when you disciple, true discipleship doesn't just disciple someone's mind with facts. You encourage their hearts, disciple their hearts as part of discipleship as well. And so we see Barnabas coming and he fans this flame. He is just stirring people up to love and good works. Anybody want to do that with your life? Anybody wake up every morning and one of the first things you think about is, God, who can I stir up to love and good works today? never thought about that, that would be a really good thing to write down and start making it a prayer early in the morning. That would be a really good daily goal. Those of you who like to have goals, who can I stir up to love and good works today? So you just get the idea. You read about Barnabas that when he showed up, it just made you happy. I mean, when people see you coming, do they say, oh, no. Or when they see you coming, do they think, yes, yes, I need them in my life right now. I I am struggling. I am wounded. I need a Barnabas right now. And they see you coming, and they think that's you. See, what made Barnabas such an encourager? I love this phrase. Luke says, he was a good man. There's not much better that can be said about you than that. He was a good man. And good men encourage other saints, other saints. Barnabas' goodness, where did it come from? Well, Luke connects it to the fullness of the Spirit and his faith. His goodness was something that flowed out of his relationship with the Lord because he was full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And then notice verse 24 also says, that out of all of this, a great number of people were brought to the Lord. See, people were coming to Christ, and then more people came to Christ after Barnabas got there. And this implies, among other things, that Barnabas' encouragement included encouragement to them to keep sharing their faith. And they did that. They kept sharing their faith, and they grew. And as they kept growing, more and more people came, and it seems like at some point Barnabas is feeling overwhelmed with all the responsibility. Like, he just can't keep up as the the pastor, the leader of this church. And that leads us to the third thing that's part of authentic discipleship. I want to call it diligent instruction. Again, here we see the humility of Barnabas. Because Barnabas has come to this church and this church has thrived under his leadership. God is doing amazing things. And he could have remained kind of like the rock star pastor of Antioch. But instead he looks around and he says, I cannot do this by myself. I need some help. I'm going to go get Saul. And so he travels to Cilicia. It wasn't terribly far from Antioch. And he he gets Saul where Saul had been sent. And he was ministering there. And and Saul of Tarsus, we know 
uh, already something about this. We're going to learn more about it, that he was a man of the world himself, that Saul uh, was a man of many cultures. He knew how to engage with all kinds of different people. See, Barnabas had already been discipling Saul in the past. You can see that in Acts 9.27. Barnabas also knew that God had called Saul to be an apostle to the Gentiles. That's from Acts 9 as well. But Barnabas knew something else. Barnabas knew that Saul was brilliant. Barnabas knew that Saul was a man who knew the scriptures. Barnabas knew that Saul was this man with his incredible bridge-building capacity to communicate to different, diverse people. Barnabas knew that this world-class church, world-changing church, needed a world-class mind. They needed to be instructed. And so he gets Saul from Tarsus, and he brings him back to Antioch. Verses 25 and 26 tell us that, that for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. They taught. They were diligently teaching. You see, you can't disciple without teaching. Music alone will never mature people. We have to be taught. There has to be instruction. This means if you are a newer Christian or you're an immature Christian, you need to get your life in a place where you can be taught. You need to get where the Bible is taught. You need to grow in the scriptures. You need to be like what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, like a baby who is drinking in milk. You have to have instruction. Barnabas knew that. And again, his humility was such that when he could have continued to lead that church and made a name for himself, he humbly shared the load with another man who I think he already knew had superior teaching gifts to his. He strategically recruited someone who he probably knew was going to quickly overtake him in prominence. You see, right now in our passage we're reading today, it's Barnabas and Saul, but we're just going to get to chapter 13, and it's not going to be Barnabas and Saul anymore. You read, it's going to be Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, Paul always first. Barnabas and Saul dedicated a year of their lives just teaching because they knew how important that teaching was. Authentic discipleship is a part of a gospel-centered church. And we see that these three kinds of authentic discipleship lead to a result. I want to call it authentic fruit, verse 26. And we see this from this, this phrase that we read. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So Barnabas got a name. And now the church gets a name. And I want you to notice something. Maybe you already saw it. They didn't call themselves Christians. They were called Christians. Other people called them this. Now, here, here's why. Before this movement in Antioch, Christianity had been viewed as a, a form of Judaism. But you can't call these Antioch Christians Jews because they're not Jewish. And you can't look at them as regular Gentiles because they're not pagans. You can't call them all Romans or Greeks or Persians because they're not. So it was like, we need a name. What are we going to call these followers of the way? Maybe you've noticed in Acts that when they talk about themselves, they say we are followers of the way, which is what Jesus had said about himself. It's almost like now we have this third race of people. There's Jews, there's Gentiles, now there's Christians, and, and these people represent a new humanity. They represent their king, Jesus. 
Many people today still assume that your religion is based on your race or your ethnicity or maybe your family heritage or maybe some places in your social class. But that didn't work in Antioch because these people came into the church from all classes. They were from all races, all different kinds of nations, worshiping together. What do you call them? Well, you call them Christians. Because when people on the outside looked at the people on the inside, what they saw were people who reflected the life and the values and the message of the one they claimed to worship. They, they saw people who looked like Jesus, who reflected Jesus. Now, it's kind of interesting. I don't know if you know this, but this title, Christian, only occurs three times in the New Testament. It's here. It's in Acts 26, 28. It's also in 1 Peter 4, 16. And you can look those up. And if you do, you will see that this is a term in each case that outsiders use about the people inside. In other words, they were different. And people saw that. And they gave them a name to reflect that. I just would ask us, do we still cause people to look at us and they think, you're like Jesus. See, what made, what made the teaching in this church, Barnabas and Saul's teaching, so different from the other religions of the day? I mean, how could it do what it did? Breaking through social barriers, establishing that kind of unity amidst that kind of diversity. And it really comes down to the gospel. It really comes down to the single-minded focus that Barnabas and Saul had. They were preaching and teaching the gospel as Jesus had instructed. And that still today is what brings about unity. It's the gospel. You say, why does that happen? Well, here's why. The gospel says we all have one problem. That problem is sin. The gospel says there's only one solution to the problem all of us have, and that solution is Jesus. See, the gospel says that we're all saved in one way by grace alone, and therefore that means there is no grounds anywhere in any of our lives for any kind of boasting. There's no room to boast in your culture, no room to boast in your ethnicity. There's no room to boast in your economic standing because all of us, we are equally in trouble apart from Jesus and in Jesus, we are all equally valuable. That's what the gospel tells us, that together we form a new humanity and out of that, when the gospel is truly believed and truly lived out, it breaks down all the walls that people build in their sinful natures. See, the disciples were called Christians. What an incredible breakthrough. Let me give you the last truth very quickly. Serve. We help people in need with sacrificial generosity. We see this in verses 27 to 30 where it says, During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. And what we see here is another aspect of fruitfulness, another result of good teaching. When people get grace, they want to show grace. When people truly experience mercy, they cannot help but want to show mercy to other people who need it. And so this Christian named Agabus who has the gift of prophecy, comes to this church and he prophesies that a great famine is going to come. And Luke tells us this was a famine that took place during the reign of Claudius. Historians today tell us that 
that famine uh, took place after the Nile River flooded the entire region around it in A.D. 45. And you say, why did that matter? Well, that area around the Nile River was at that time the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. And when, when that region flooded, grain prices skyrocketed throughout the Roman world and people began to starve to death. It impacted Judea. And Agabus says, guys, everyone is going to be starving in a few years. So what do you do? When you have insider information, what do you do when you know uh, that a famine is coming? You say, well, I don't, I've never had to think about that. Well, just imagine this. Just imagine Y2K. What did you do? Some of you are maybe a little young to remember that. It's not that long ago. But most of us remember, you know, leading up to Y2K, everybody was freaking out, right? People were hoarding canned food, stocking up water because, you know, when when the clock turns over to 2,000, all the computers are going to go crazy and it's all going to come apart, right? You guys remember this, don't you? Well, here's the point. What we do is we normally think about ourselves. I mean, if you have that info that a famine is coming, you're going to probably think about yourself. How can I protect my family? But that is not what these people do. They decide, each one according to their ability, all of them participating, that they are going to send help to the brothers living in Judea. Really quickly, I'm going to mention three characteristics of the way they serve that we see here. The first thing is their service was selfless. They hear the message from Agabus and like, boom, they just respond. Agabus doesn't tell them what to do. They just, they, 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 they come up with their own plan to do something. They're more concerned about helping others than taking care of themselves. This reminds us we're not supposed to only help others once we've got our life all buttoned down tightly and everything is stable and secure. That's how some of us think. We need to start now where there's need, even if that means we start small. So they give their offering to Barnabas and Saul. Uh, We'll see next week when we look at Acts 12 how this is all carried out, this offering that gets taken to Jerusalem. Second thing is their service was generous. They don't ask how much will it cost. They just give as much as they can according to their ability. And I have to ask the question, when you help others, do you do as little as possible, you know, whatever it takes to get the Holy Spirit off your back? Or do you do whatever you can? Do you go as far as you can? Generous. Third, it was corporate. These were people acting together as a church body, caring for another group of believers, a partnership with other people. Even though these people in Jerusalem are very different from them, they knew that we both belong to Jesus. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, and we want to help. We want to serve. We want to care for them. Daryl Bach is a scholar who's written like thousands of pages, I'm not joking, on the book of Acts. And he says about this passage, this summary could hardly do a better job of showing a vibrant church at work. And he's right. May the Lord grant us grace to be this kind of gospel-centered church. Would you bow your heads as we pray together? Father God, we thank you for giving us a mission that you have sent us out. And Lord, because of Jesus, we have a life worth living. 
because Jesus has rescued us. And Lord, I pray that every one of us here will get up each morning saying, yes, Lord, what do you want me to do today? I want to follow you. I want to serve you. I want to obey you. May that be our heart. Lord, we ask you to empower us and to guide us as we in our lives connect and grow and serve. We ask that your favor rest on us, that your good hand be with us. We give you thanks that you never leave us, never forsake us. You're always with us. Praying these things in the name of your son, Jesus. And all God's people said.